0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the South Asian Studies channel of the New Books Network. Today, we have a really special episode lined up. Our book under discussion is Indian Democracy, Origins, Trajectories, and Contestations from Pluto Press. It came out earlier last month, and we are being joined here by the editors themselves, from three corners of the world. So we have Alf Nielsen from Pretoria in South Africa, Kenneth Nielsen from Oslo in Norway, and Anand Vaidya from Portland, Oregon. So, And I'm your host, Madhuri, from Ankara, Turkey. So we're going to talk about the origins, trajectories, and contestations of Indian democracy literally a day after the results of India's parliamentary elections were announced. You know all the statistics already, largest electorate in the world, 600 million people voted, and they returned the incumbent party, the BJP, to an overwhelming victory. So I thought perhaps we could process this result together. Narendra Modi, India's Hindu nationalist authoritarian Chowkidar, as he liked to call himself frequently during the campaign, is back in power after five years of warmongering and the catastrophe that was demonetization and cow vigilantism. And then you had the questionable delivery on all his achidin promises, except perhaps, you know, the hundred million toilets. So Alf, Kenneth, Anand, you just edited this book, right, on Indian democracy, which is a collection of essays and conversations between academics, journalists, and activists. You tell our listeners, what did we just witness? But perhaps start with how the book came about, the origin story of the book, so to speak. Right. Well,
2: if I may start, the origin story of the book uh, relates to a project that uh, the three of us carried out together uh, from 2014 to. to- 2018, um, which was a project that aimed to develop a new research agenda around the whole issue of how social movements and state formation uh, are linked together in and through Indian democracy. Um, and as part of that, uh, we uh, we organized a symposium that took place in Oslo in um, October 2017, uh, where what we wanted to do was to take a critical look at uh, Indian democracy from a number of angles uh, uh, at seven decades um, after Independence, um, and uh, and what we have here t- today, this book is is a product of that. It's a product of um, of a, of uh, the the kind of critical engagements that we were fortunate to to have in Oslo. So that's where the the book comes from.
1: And you know, having sort of edited this book and compiled these essays together, of course, you know you. Have in your conclusion a uh, sort of looking forward to what the summer twenty nineteen elections might bring, and you know what that critical juncture will really reveal about the contestations, the trajectories. And here we are. So, how have you been processing this uh, massive electoral mandate for the BJP in light of the book?
2: Well, I think in general terms, I'm, I'm going to leave some of the specifics to Kenneth in particular. But in in in, uh, in general terms, uh, I think what you've pointed out uh, uh, in in the introduction here is, is important to note is that there, there is a real sense in which this landslide victory defies any kind of material law of gravity, if you will, in politics. Uh, because what we have here is a, is a prime minister who's been re-elected after having uh, failed to deliver just about every development promise that he made uh, during the ele- the uh, the campaigns for 2014. Uh, and uh, conversely, I think it's, uh, it's a culmination, if you will, of the Authoritarian populism that uh, that has been enacted since then, where uh, Modi and uh, the BJP has sort of drawn a line, if you will, between true Indians and their enemies, and uh, the enemies are you know overwhelmingly located within the nation. So dissidents, religious minorities, um, and uh, groups that are somehow beyond the pale of the Hindu nation, um, and uh, and has sold that massively, which is what they also did during the elections. Along with that, I think we've see we're seeing the results of very clever electoral engineering, uh, whereby um, the construction of of sort of a, an, a uniform Hindu identity uh, and uh, a national, uh, a cultural nationalism around that has drawn in uh, several um, uh, Dalit groups and OBC groups that uh, did not, uh, so so to speak, come under the sway of parties like the SP and the BSP. Uh, and I think that created quite a juggernaut, a juggernaut that um, that was that was unlikely, uh, especially in light of some of the things that we saw late last year: farmers' protests, uh, losses in the state elections, and so on. Uh, so what I what what I think we're seeing here is uh, is first and foremost a, a kind of supercharged Hindu nationalism that has a significant resonance with large sections of the Indian electorate and uh, and a significant hold uh, on the Indian electorate.
3: Yes, uh, I think um, most of us are still trying to process uh, what we witnessed uh, yesterday. Um, Perhaps before I talk about this, uh, just a few words about the edited volume, uh, because it's true, it is an edited volume, uh, but it's also based on this uh, symposium we had that Elf mentioned uh, earlier. And we've sort of tried to retain that format in the book, in the sense that we reproduce the conversational format. We have many of the chapters without any way of references, so it's really composed as an invitation to a conversation about Indian democracy rather than a conventional exit volume making a firm statement. And if, just to reflect on the results yesterday, um, Uh, A remarkable outcome, I think. Uh, Thinking back to 2014, when we saw the results at that time, I think many of us were thinking, uh, this is not going to happen again in 2019. Uh, There's no way these results could be reproduced uh, five years down the road. They were so extraordinary. But then looking at the results coming in yesterday, if you look at the electoral map of India, it's remarkably similar this time around to 2014. And that movie is, uh, is a surprise. The few losses in U.P. were easily compensated by inroads into uh, Rissa and to West Bengal, most spectacularly. So um, I think it's onto something that speaks about this particular traction was produced around Modi this time. Not to mention, of course, his party's uh, superior resources, both financially, but also not least in, in social media.
1: Anand, do you want to chime
4: in? Yeah, I would just I would just add something. I mean, on top of everything that Alf and Kenneth have said, I just that something that we we discussed in the book and that we've discussed among the three of us, um, is this is a sort of larger um Gramscian project of the RSS in the context of which all of this needs to be understood. Um that I mean, the the sort of long march to the institutions that they've been carrying out, um and the and the cultural project of the RSS, that that it's not that the BJP is not a party like the Congress in that when the Congress loses it, it's nothing. But when the BJP loses an election, it sort of falls back into this much larger organization, um, which has been priming people. This is something that a number of people pointed out recently. Ajaz Ahmed has written about this. Um, I know Joe's was saying this on Twitter today, actually, um, that they've, they have had editors ready to go. I, I remember in the, in the run-up to the 2014 election, all these editors, including Siddharth Vardarajan, who's in the book, um, lost their jobs as more Modi-friendly people were put in their place. Um, but I don't think we, have I think the scale of the civil society project of the RSS is something that we really need to grapple with um, uh, in, in terms of the larger cultural transformation that's taken place that allowed the consolidation of this block that Alf is, Alf is talking
2: about. I think to add to that, uh, just just uh, a, a quick thought is, of course, that, uh, I mean, Anna is absolutely right in pointing out this, And, and but what's happened sort of in addition uh, I think around this of the of the well since 2014 it happened already during the election campaign there is of course that um the parliamentary side of the Hindu nationalist uh, Hindu nationalist project uh, in the form of the BJP has uh, um has really uh, has really also sort of drawn in social groups that previously uh, had a more tangential connection to it and and uh, because we have to remember after all that um you know in terms of electoral politics the bjp has been grounded primarily in sort of upper caste middle class urban groups that that are not that significant a force uh, in well, in an electoral democracy, so so it's that sort of consolidation of, um, if you will, around around the electoral side of things is also extremely significant right now.
1: Just you know, um, going back to Anand, what you just said about the RSS making deeper inroads into you know the social fabric of uh, India, so to speak. I was reading this interesting piece that compared the BJP electoral campaign in 2014 and 2019, and what the observer zeroed in on was how five years ago the BJP was almost entirely silent on the communalist front, and it was you know mostly developmental promises, uh, economic growth, jobs. And of course, you know, the last five years, very little of that has actually panned out. You know, I'm especially thinking here of, say, the Skill India program, right? The massive skilling exercise that was being specifically targeted to young people. And come 2019, you see this big shift in the tropes that were being mobilized during the elections and the campaigning on WhatsApp groups and, you know, the fake news um, stories being propagated and so on. So just uh, wondering if you could comment on, you know, the shifting axes of, uh, yeah, just populist mobilization and what that, you know, has come to mean for this round of elections. Well, I think
2: it reflects the track record of, of the government in a way, you know, what uh, what you mentioned, what I touched upon just earlier, which is that uh, if they were to have launched another campaign focusing on development, they would have had very little to focus on. Uh, we're looking at a situation where unemployment is at the 45-year high where there is a thoroughgoing uh, agrarian crisis, which has only deepened under Modi, uh, inequalities have escalated uh, immensely under Modi as well. They were already high; they have uh, gotten higher, uh, which tells you something about where the, the benefits of, of economic growth are, uh, are accumulating in the country. So there's very little to there's very little to show for there, and I think that that sort of uh, created, a, you know made uh, made a shift of focus of virtue of necessity and and uh, as far as the focus on or using sort of um, the discourse of Hindu nationalism in, in the election campaign, I think I mean that's in a sense only uh, an, um, an a continuation of uh, of what they've been doing since 2014 whilst in power. Uh, there was a sort of dog whistle Hindutva that was uh, going on during the election campaigns, uh, and obviously Modi tried to um, tried to to render himself exclusively as a man of development. Uh, that changed very quickly uh, after after twenty fourteen, and and uh, and that's also so that there's a continuity there. Uh, the turn to a, a sort of um, a cultural nationalism and an authoritarian po- populism. Uh, that that draws on uh, on cultural nationalism has been has been what they've done for the past five years. And that's what they did in the elections as well. And it's all in all likelihood is what they'll continue doing.
1: I mean, in that regard, I really appreciated the sort of diversity of contributors you have in the book. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, Kavita Krishnan's piece and how she really breaks down um, the RSS ideology and, you know, this whole attempt uh, to make any kind of ism, right? Uh, So mobilization around caste or around feminist issues or inequality as a sort of fragmenting of the Hindu front. And that, when read alongside your other contributions on caste politics, uh, was particularly productive for me. So just could you all maybe talk a bit about how you went about organizing the book in terms of you know topics and how you were thinking about contributors and the kinds of conversations you wanted to have
2: well, I, th- I think w- what we started with was was basically a sort of uh, imagined wish list of uh, of who we would want to have a conversation with uh, about about these themes, you know. Uh, so that and that covers sort of public intellectuals whose whose contributions uh, I think all of us w- would would agree that we've learned a lot from over the years, um, activists whose um, whose you know. Courage, share courage in the context of Modi's India. One one can only admire and, and scholars that one has also that one have also learned from over the years, and, uh, and I think that that's that's created um, that that's come together quite nicely, and, uh, and and also the fact that we we uh, we tried to promote a sort of um, open conversational style around this uh, in order to, to, to in order to reflect the fact that these are public issues of, of quite great importance.
1: So perhaps, you know, I'll um, ask about certain specific things in the book that uh, struck me. Mm. So I loved the middle sections where you have the dialogues, right, between Nandini Sundar and Dolly Kekon and then um, Raka Ray and Srila Roy. Um, So maybe beginning with... uh, Something I think uh, Nandini Sundar uh, points out, which is that democracy often is something very hard to criticize, right? Because it's a fairly positive notion. But the fact remains that, you know, much before the BJP were even in power, for large swaths of the nation, democracy was not. a material reality in any sense, and so she talks about how democracy often feels like a form of surrender, and that it proposes alternatives, uh, political alternatives. So, could you, if any 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 of you, uh, speak to you know the the groups, the communities, the regions? Who have you know been silenced and sidelined um, long before the b j p were even in power in in a kind of systemic uh sense
2: uh anand this might might be very well put to to to, to address <laughs> that no. uh i mean,
4: yeah i i think that's a that's a good point that um it's something that came up in the book it's something that we've talked about among the three of us um a great deal as well uh that in a sense, what you're seeing with the BJP in power is an extension of techniques that were already, um, that various regions and communities at the margins of of the Indian state have experienced for a long time. Um, and that it's all sort of been available to the state um, since 1947, if not before. Um, as for the place of democracy as, as the sort of, figure under which these um these forms of coercion are practiced um i i guess that's just been that's been brought home sharply today uh i'm i'm trying to remember exactly what Nandini's point was in that in that essay in that conversation
1: i can uh, uh quickly read it out um so she basically says so you know after recounting an instance of an interlocutor who was forcibly made to surrender as a Maoist sympathizer. Um, You know, she talks about how, and I quote, for me, democracy at large is much like the idea of surrender. We don't know how to officially find a way of saying that. What we have now is not democracy. It's much harder to reject something that's positive sounding because people invariably ask what else you want instead. And, you know, they, Dolly and Sundar conclude that dialogue sort of talking about a politics of hope and alternatives, right? Something that sort of goes beyond the aperture of what democracy has served for um, marginalized communities. So both Adivasis in central India and, in the Northeast, and I thought that that was so powerful to actually have in a book that you know is interrogating democracy right to go beyond its sort of very terms I mean this is sort of the
4: tension that that comes through the book, it comes through all of our work uh, is that yes, exactly democracy the, the terms of Indian democracy have been used to stifle democratic claims upon the state and upon the um, upon the economy upon whatever um and yet those same terms have been used to create openings for further claims um, uh, by the people who it's excluded um that it it works it's this, it works in both directions always, and we're seeing i mean in light of of yesterday's election results, I think it's it's tempting to sort of write off the whole enterprise um but i i mean even i mean in my work um in in with uh, landless forest dwellers um, in Uttar Pradesh, people who were unarguably the victims of um, dispossession through democracy, um, they've used the the sort of terms and institutions of of democratic electoral politics to make you know certain inroads.
2: Yeah, if if I can jump in there as well, um, but, I mean, this is a, this is a sort of a, an ambiguity, I guess, that that we were trying to capture with, uh, you know, both of the symposium that the book comes from and in the book itself, which is. Uh, the sense that there are both limits and opportunities uh, at play in Indian democracy. Uh, the limits are very much uh, a result, uh, uh, as we tried to to bring out in in some of the in uh, across the contributions rather in the in the uh, start of the book that looks at the historical origins of of Indian democracy. Uh, these are limitations that are grounded in the kinds of class based control and the kinds of caste based control and power uh, that have limited the real working, sort of substantive workings of, of Indian democracy in, in important ways uh, over the years. And, and it's important to reckon with those, uh, because otherwise you're, you're, you're left with the kind of narrative that, that, sort of, uh, that would suggest that if only uh, one was to have an India that isn't ruled uh, by Hindu nationalists, all would be well. Uh, and and that would of course be far too too simplistic. I mean, the, the the inequalities that have deepened under Modi have have been there for a long time. It's just that they've been turned up to eleven. Uh, the kind of uh, you know communalism is of course has a long history and it's used in electoral politics as a long history, but it's been turned up to ten. Uh, Even the UPA was uh, was no stranger to coercion uh, in relation to dissidents and social movements, but again, it's been intensified uh, under the current dispensation. So, so there's something about maintaining those two, two sort of, or or maintaining an awareness of that contradiction, I think, uh, which runs through the narrative that we're trying to bring, uh, bring to bear, if you will, or to bring out uh, about Indian democracy, and and that also has ramifications for how we think of the current uh, situation. I mean, I, to be honest with you, I was one of those who, who were hoping to, to say in the aftermath of the election that, well, now that uh, Modi is no longer in power, perhaps we can uh, move on from talking about uh, constitutional democracy being at risk and instead uh, what it would take to address some of its uh, significant social deficits. You know, the fact that, that subaltern groups and subaltern classes um, have not been able to win uh, significant reform. Uh, within uh, the parameters of Indian democracy, but that's not a luxury that that the elections have left us with. Uh, what we have instead is a situation where it'll, in all likelihood, be necessary, even though you know, d- despite whatever misgivings one might have, to to um, uh, to rally around uh, you know uh, India's constitutional democracy in its in its sort of simple liberal form, if only to ensure that there is a space where underprivileged groups can build their movements uh and and can build opposition to 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 the powers that be
4: yeah exactly i think i think that i mean to make a pitch for the book um i think the the project of the book seems to me even more important now um to go back to the founding moments um to look at the compromises that went into the constitution that went into the question anupama rao's work on the on the the minority question how it was worked out in the initial days um and that the, I mean, as as we've been discussing, that the that the Nehruvian liberal promise maybe was never all that, and that it sort of sets its, set the stage for where we've we've ended
0: up. slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
3: If I may just uh, return to that conversation between uh, Nandini Shundar and Dolly Kikon. Um, Being at the symposium, I thought that was was a beautiful conversation, which I think was uh, centered around the particular kind of experience that they had working uh, in central India and in the Northeast, but also really interrogating uh, the power of the words and the concepts that we have when we try to look at uh, Indian democracy, Indian politics more, more broadly. And what is it that a term such as democracy? And that's to the kind of debate that one can have about uh, uh, either yesterday or in light of the current elections. Um, And I think to return to the book, um, we retained this conversational format in the book as well. And I think that has some advantages in terms of reproducing the tension that one finds in contradicting positions uh, in the book uh, as well.
1: Yes, I really appreciated your inclusion of the conversation format. You know, it really. Um, throws into sharper relief a lot of the debates that sometimes can feel a little opaque in a standalone essay. I mean, you know, the dialogue between Srila Roy and Raka Ray, particularly the fact that they are feminist scholars, both so iconic in their own generation, but then sitting together and having this conversation and assessing the contemporary moment was um very powerful to me and actually that reminds me i have this written down so uh, Srila roy at one point you know talks about how with the advent of ngoization and neoliberal feminist feminism <laughs> um she calls it this uh, mode of governance feminism, right? Where there is this increased uh, attempt to find a feminist space through law and you have activist lawyers, you have um, everything from um, so-called feminists on the streets baying for the blood of uh, rapists, but also a more productive conversation on what the law really can offer for uh, women's rights in India. And, you know, I was thinking this, putting this conversation against your earlier section on Consti- the constitution and, you know, what Anand was uh, saying just earlier about the compromise the compromises that had, you know, we're already at the heart of uh, the very writing of the Constitution. And so, I don't know, I was thinking, so is the Constitution the last bastion where, you know, almost like the wall in Game of Thrones where the ultimate battle is going to be fought? Because, you know, what what's going to stop the trolls? What's going to stop the, yeah. The vigilantes, the the riots, the violence. The is is that is that the wall? Is that where we all have to kind of line up?
2: Well, I think it's important to remember here that uh, you know, sort of, constitutional democracy doesn't it doesn't lend its protections to uh, to subaltern groups without those groups actually actively taking it. You know, it, it's it's sort of that fundamental lesson that that rights are in fact not given; they are taken. Uh, and and in, in in certainly in the immediate context now i i i worry that that uh you know uh, whatever holds um vulnerable groups subaltern groups minorities in india has managed to to to, to, to sort of Develop and to have on the constitution might slip in no small part because we're looking at a scenario where one might have uh, the BJP in a majority in both houses of parliament in in a year's time or so, uh, which uh, which puts them in a unique position to to remove protections, for example. Uh, for minorities and all of and so on and so forth that are written into into the constitution. So, so it's it's if if, if it's not the last line, it's certainly I think it's certainly an, an important bulwark, uh, and it's a bulwark that, despite its limitations, limitations that were uh, are pointed out by Chandita Dasgupta Gupta in, in the book, um, you know, needs to be to be valued simply for the defence that it it offers some of those who are now most at risk from a from a regime that is unlikely to. To have its best interest in mind,
4: I mean, but I mean, so point is also that the, I mean, he he talks about how the the word revolution never shows up um, in the constitution or in the constituent assembly debates, um, and that the project of the constitution was to manage a revolutionary project into something m- more governable and, and administrable,
1: widely All right. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, and I, I
4: so I would, I guess. The the moment that I would return to in terms of hoping that the Constitution would serve as some sort of bulwark is the post-emergency moment um, with the rise of public interest litigation and the Supreme Court stepping in to speak on behalf of a Constitution um, against an overpowerful executive, uh, uh, which has led now to this, um, to this sort of the, the most powerful court in the world. Um, deciding what a constitution that it defines means, um, which seems to me to be entirely undemocratic. I don't, I don't see, I mean, I see the constitution opens, offers various openings, but, but a rush to the constitution as, as protecting democracy when the constitution itself was designed to sort of manage and, and keep democracy in control um, and that the institutions which interpret it are themselves profoundly undemocratic doesn't seem to be an answer to me.
1: Kenneth, how would you uh, respond uh, to the constitution perhaps not being the magic pill?
3: This is a very intriguing question that uh, we've also been discussing over the past one, two days and um, I, I'm, in, I'm in two minds about this, uh, this issue. Uh, I, I see where both Elf uh, and Anand are going with, uh, with their take on things. Um, I think Something that we've also been talking about, the three of us, uh, because we have this shared interest, I think, in in law and litigation and this sort of duality that one finds in in this form of uh, institution and document and potential, basically. Um, uh, What we've seen over the past five years, I think, is not particularly encouraging, to put it mildly. And I I think is, I think you use... The word, if not on the defensive, then at least that sort of the, the, the situation one one finds oneself at, at the moment is more about thinking how can one sort of mount a defense on the various uh, rights that are available, uh, rather than thinking about how can one think of new strategies in terms of deepening or democratizing Indian democracy. I think that's that's sort of the the the, the urgent
4: uh, discussion to have also
2: absolutely i agree with that
4: i mean I, w- I would just add um that thinking about the, the going back to the discussion between Raka and sheila um in the book um that the the turned the, there's this sort of ambivalent turn towards the law that you talk about um and i think it's important to, to keep the constitution and the law separate i mean not separate but to think of them as as distinct things um and in many cases i mean such as the forest rights act which i've worked on the law is seen precisely as a as a way of protecting yourself against the Constitution and against its interpreters in the Supreme Court, um, so specific I think there's there's a wider and more complicated terrain in terms of legal politics um, than just the interpretation of of the Constitution as the upholder of rights.
1: So you know, given the interesting uh, format of the book, and you know you also indicate in your introduction that you envisaged a wider audience for this volume. Am I correct in presuming that? Oh, absolutely, yes. yes.
2: <laughs> this is a book that's written very much or put together very much uh, as, as a contribution to critical debate in the public sphere rather than, than simply sort of to be of academic interest, so yes.
1: And how have you, you know, in the last month, Um, seen the response, and particularly, you know, against yesterday's results, how do you hope the book will be read and carried forward in the public space?
2: Well, I certainly hope it'll be read widely, and that uh, it'll be taken as as testament to to the fact that uh, even though uh, you know India is politically going through a, a, a dark moment, and 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 is wearing towards something one might call a, a majoritarian democracy. Uh, in his workings, that, that there is a, that there's quite an, still quite an intense richness to, in terms of the various voices of dissidents, uh, that, that, uh, you know, that, that, that want something else for, for the country. Uh, and, uh, and that these have, these voices have, have real insights to offer. Um, I think it's a time when we're in a time now when we need something that, uh, Raymond Williams simply referred to once as, uh, resources of hope. And, uh, yeah. For me, uh, I, I hope the book will be precisely that, uh, or the, the contributions in the book will be precisely that.
1: In that a lot of the sort of challenges or you know conflicts that we are witnessing aren't necessarily just five years old or 10 years old, but rather have you know deep-seated histories behind them.
2: Oh, absolutely that too. Uh, again, it's 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 the thing about keeping you know two ideas in one set at the same time without losing the plot, so to say. You know, without being aware of the demands of the moment and and the sort of the perils of the moment, which which I think Kenneth was absolutely correct in in sort of pointing to the fact that we're we're now talking about a, a conjuncture in which there are some very sort of fundamental, basic democratic freedoms that are you know at at real risk and and that perhaps is the overwhelming need of the moment to address that but on the other hand to to not lose sight of the fact that um the fact that there are deeper uh deeper oppressive structures to grapple with and and that might be something that isn't just you know, uh, specific to India. Uh, one could say the same about, uh, you know, other, uh, other contexts in which this kind of authoritarian populism is flourishing. Uh, you know, the, the debates that are currently going on in, in the American context for is based, uh, you know, it, 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 there is a tendency among some just to, to think that if only, you know, we have a different person in the White House. All will be all will be well. But obviously, we're talking about uh, you know much deeper, historically sedimented structure, structures that uh, that that also have to be addressed in any kind of uh, more long term. I think uh, oppositional political project
4: and deeper deeper sediments of oppositional politics that that didn't disappear just because Modi and the BJP uh, have have entrenched their power yesterday.
3: Yeah, if I may just uh, just add to this because I, I agree completely, and I, I think we, uh, Anand mentioned our, our sort of Gramscian approach that underlies the book, however implicitly, and we also I think use the idea of the conjuncture very seriously, in the sense that we think about these longer historical structural processes, but also the significance of individual action in the present. And I think that coming together of what Anand spoke about as the long march through the institutions of the Sangh Parivar, in combination with the kind of campaign that Modi is able to run now, where as many as perhaps one third of all people who voted for the BJP voted for them because of him, and I think that that coming together is is very important to to have in one's mind, uh, not just to focus, as Alp said, on Uh, If only we didn't have Trump in the White House, things would be better. Uh, I think the the argument, of course, applies in the Indian context as well.
1: Right. And, you know, speaking uh, to your comparison with the American context, I also appreciated, you know, Siddharth Vardarajan really breaking down the comparison between how the American media has approached Trump's ascent and how The Indian media has more to the point not uh, addressed or challenged or critiqued uh, Modi's ascent. And you know what that has to say about these deeper corporate structures that, you know, now uh, shape the Indian media landscape. And I, you know, as we are sort of moving towards our conclusion, I thought I'd invite each of you to. Maybe just uh, reflect a little briefly on, you know, the 60,000 WhatsApp groups that were at the forefront of the BJP's electoral machinery, right? I mean, you have, like, that's people's jobs now to sit at a desk with a phone and send out messages, all false, of course, uh, about the martyrs who died in Pulwama, the origin of the Hindu nation, I mean, you name it. And I think that's perhaps the new part of the old structures of oppression, right? The new ways in which they're manifesting themselves in our present. So while I, you know, appreciated Vardarajan's contribution, I think I would have liked to see more analysis of this sort of post-truth, you know, fake news moment in India right now. So... Well, let, let
2: me start by by saying that I, I think uh, what we're looking at in terms of sort of the BJP's IT cell and the extensive use of WhatsApp and other forms of social media is I think I think it represents the, the sort of the next lap, if you will, on that long march uh, through the institutions that uh, you know the RSS and the Sangh has been conducting for an awful, awfully long time. And and uh, and the thing here is, of course, that they're they're ahead of 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 the rest of the bunch uh, by by miles and miles, and it's Given them an edge, and uh, one of our contributors, Subir Sinha, has uh, uh, has done extensive work on this uh, more recently. Uh, and his argument is, of course, that um, uh, the the use of social media, the use of WhatsApp, and so on and so forth, uh, actually plays an incredibly important role in building uh, the hegemony of Modi and the hegemony of of the BJP. You know, it's uh, it, that, that's where a significant amount of the production of that political project and uh, the anchoring of that political project in popular common sense actually takes place. Um, And uh, what's worrying is, of course, if we then, uh, or it creates additional worry in me at least, is that when we see uh, that uh, this is such an arena for the spreading of fake news, of sort of post-truth narratives uh, about India, its history, its future, whatnot, uh, it adds extra anxiety for me when we then consider that institutions that uh, should be dedicated uh, to the production of truth and so on and so forth, whether that be you know universities, cultural institutions, uh, civil society institutions uh, in India and so on and so forth, are also being saffronized, right? These are institutions that are being suffused with... Uh, with BJP sympathizers, BJP members, people who have, uh, you know, proven themselves to be loyal to Modi and so on and so forth. And and that's a real challenge. You know, that's, uh, that's something to be taken very seriously.
4: And it speaks again to the, the distinctive project of the RSS um, versus the Congress that there's nothing equivalent. There's no, the Congress doesn't have a cultural project in the same way. The con- Congress doesn't, doesn't have, its own sort of cotter of intellectuals and editors that it can send out there. It has it has critical sympathizers um, who we can all name, um, but nothing like this. They, 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 in in a sense, the Congress and all of us are being are being totally out. I think there's there's a danger the day after the election of sort of reverse engineering the election and and seeing all signs leading to a place that we didn't see them leading to a week ago. Um, uh, but but just to sort of To take into account that larger project um, seems critical at this moment.
3: If I can just jump in uh, with regards to social media. Um, I have worked in in West Bengal for a number of years. And conventional wisdom about West Bengal politics, uh, since at least the left government, but perhaps also before, was that the road to power was real physical control and presence in the villages to the greatest extent possible. Uh, That's how the communists consolidated, and that was, in a sense, also the kind of organizational form that Mamta Banerjee was trying to replicate when she came to power 10 years ago, which has been why one tended to look at Bengal as a tough terrain for the BJP. They had very few grassroots card race. hardly any political leaders worth mentioning, they had no reach beyond certain pockets in in Calcutta. This time they get around 40% of the votes in Bengal. Uh, Not because they suddenly invented a grassroots organization. I mean, it's better now than it's been ever before. But because of the way you can reach people massively also via social media, uh, which costs a lot of money, of course, to have that kind of organization build up, but which the BJP was able to pour into Bengal this time. And they earned a jump from, uh, from a mere 10% at the most recent state assembly elections a couple of years ago to 40% this time.
1: Yeah, I mean, the sheer scale of the BJP's IT operations is, uh, yes, frankly, quite uh, terrifying. Um. So, you know, as we start wrapping up, I thought I'd ask you about any future projects that you have collectively, individually, you know, as we all try to process what just happened and then our sort of political projects going forward, right? How to um, rebuild, reinvigorate, rethink
2: well for us for the three of us there is there's a, there's a book project that's that's making its way uh, along at a, at a leisurely pace which is looking at uh, law and state formation and uh, sort of the evolution of of democracy in india from 1920 to the present and and uh, you know with yesterday's result we certainly have uh, a lot of hard thinking to do around that and and, and around i think you know how to, how to grapple with uh, what kind of moment this is in in modern indian history um And I think a good hard rethink is what uh, many quarters need to turn to uh, at the moment. I mean, uh, we 're looking for example, at a country where where left opposition has been more or less completely decimated uh, where there's there still is this sort of dogged failure to to advance real communication uh, if you will between older forms of oppositional forces and newer forms of oppositional forces that have emerged since two thousand and fourteen and i 'm thinking specifically about new forms of dalit radicalism uh, and uh, and also of course farmers movements around rural distress uh, you know that there needs to be uh, a confrontation i guess with with the uh, with uh, the question as to why um progressive forces in the country were not able to 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 catalyze uh, these sort of uh, scattered resistances together into something more forceful uh, than than what they did
4: um, i mean one thing that i this is this is not a concrete project, but it's something that we've discussed among the three of us um, i think the one thing that doesn't come through in the book necessarily is the relationship between the mode of accumulation. Um, or or capital in general and these various political projects, but I think it's critical right now that the bjp is just so much so much better funded than any any quarters of the opposition um that understanding uh its relationship with capital understanding it with relationship to um new forms of accumulation by succession and so on I think would be to me a step forward right now.
3: Yeah, I, w- I would echo Anand's concluding comments. I think that if there is if there's one tiny piece left unaddressed in the book, that that might be that. Um, uh, I, I think more work needs to be done in that field, and it's also it's a difficult field to research. You know, I mean, accessing the kind of information you need is is, is not easy. But I think. Uh, following that, like very sold out by Anand, uh, in light of uh, the, the broader project that Elf mentioned that we have been working on now for for some time, and and which hopefully will finally materialize in this uh, book being ready within a
1: year. Right, and I just want to thank all of you for you know putting together this really thoughtful and accessible. Volume, and I hope in the coming months, um, you know, more people turn to it to find answers about yesterday's result, but then also find inspiration on how we can mobilize and, you know, think collectively about our futures going forward. So, thank you so much for your time, and I wish you all the best for your future projects.
4: Thanks so much, Madhuri.
2: Thank you, and same to you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.